Good morning. If you take your uh, bulletins, turn to page four. And uh, when God's church in the Old Testament used to uh, read this, well, they didn't actually read it. They sang it, and everybody sang it. So we're going to do what they did. So we're going to stand this morning. We're going to read this together out loud. There's no sitting down at a concert, right? There's no, uh, you're the choir. So let's uh, tell God's word to each other. Let's tell it to our our hearts, and in one sense, we're telling it to the world. The, the Lord is our shepherd. This, this is a confession of faith. This is good news. So let's read this together. This is a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Have a seat. I have to confess something to you. There's something that I've never learned in my whole life. I still don't know which months of the year have 31 days and which one has 20. Well, February has 28, right? Except... uh, Leap year, right? Why don't I know that? Well, it's because I never learned that little rhyme. My wife has tried to teach it to me. My kids have tried to teach it to me. And my, my brain is so full of old phone numbers and passwords and locations and, and trivia that I just can't seem to stuff anything new and really useful into my brain. So another thing that my family mocks me about is literally coming to church. We take a little shortcut on Center Street. And I can never remember, is it the first left or the second left? But I know that there's going to be a car full of people saying, it's the second left. So I, I literally don't have to memorize what street I should turn on. But I, I'm also uh, ashamed to, to admit something, too, about knowing God. And this is maybe a struggle a lot of people have, is sometimes you read something, sometimes you, you learn something, and you're just kicking yourself like, I should know this. I should know better. And last week, it was a holiday, so I had a little extra time. I got a little bit extra sleep, so I was feeling really excited. So I read, did my devotions, and for the Bible reading, it was Psalm 105.4. And it says, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. And I go, wow, that's a really good verse. That'd be a really good life verse. Really awesome. And then I started to ask questions of that verse that I couldn't answer. How do I seek his presence? Is it by praying up? Do I need to bow towards Jerusalem? Like, like what, what do I do with that verse? It sounds great, and I think it would change my life, but I just didn't know, like, seek his, does that mean pray every time I see the word Lord, or every time I see Starbucks, that remind me I need God more than coffee, and so I'll pray when I drive past every, what does that mean? And so, as people keep pushing me, and, and in my counseling classes, uh, they kept pushing me as like, that's great, that Bible verse is awesome, 
but what about that depressed person who can't see or feel the goodness of God? Help them to flesh it out. Help them to imagine this truth and have it be real to them, more real to them uh, than what they're suffering or what they're feeling. And I had to admit, sometimes we feel like, yes, Lord, I seek your presence, but then we don't feel it. And we go, is there something broken inside me? Am I one of those really lame Christians? Uh, I want to be a really great Christian. I want to experience God. And it really dawned on me uh, that seeking for a feeling, as Pastor Michael is talking about marriage, seeking for that feeling, that buzz of being with God, actually is a bad goal. Because we might not actually be seeking after God. We're seeking the buzz. So I was thinking about seeking God's presence. How will I know that I've sought him? How will I know that I've found him? How will I know that I know him? And what popped into my head was Psalm 23. Here we have uh, David and his people singing about how have they seen God's presence. And really, this is calling us to look at our lives Not so much looking in heaven, trying to imagine the throne and trying to imagine God's glory, trying to imagine ourselves to this buzz of feeling God's presence and feeling his glory. But the message of Psalm 23 is God is present. Look around. And so really, there's not so much points this morning as almost like this is a family slideshow of how God takes care of his kids and he's in every picture. And we're going to see in the 23rd Psalm the different parts of life and that God is right in the center of that picture. And sometimes we don't even sense it. While we eat dinner, it's right next to our family computer is on Nancy's desk. And her screensaver is all of our photos in iPhoto just circling. So people, we stop and say, hey, there's a picture of baby Coop. And there's a, oh, there's dad when he's acting funny. Or, or there's mom. She doesn't didn't want to have a picture taken of her. You know, all these different things. And so literally eating at the table is actually going down memory lane. And this morning we're going to eat at the table, which in one sense is going down memory lane, but experiencing right now God's presence and God's provision. So let's just go through this. And instead of trying to feel close to God and trying to imagine ourselves or trying to imagine God, we want to look at where God is active and then find that as a place where we can say, Oh, God, you were there, and I love you. God, you were there in this kind of time in my life, and I, and I praise you. So let's look first at this very famous uh, first verse. The Lord is my shepherd. In the text, do you see it's kind of all caps? This wasn't somebody had caps lock on on accident and forgot to take it off. This is how English translations translate the term or the word Yahweh or others say Jehovah, Y-H-W-H, done in English is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When is the first time that we hear this name? This is when God appears to Moses in the burning bush. And obviously that freaks him out. But what freaks him out more is that God has tagged Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. And if you know the story, Moses has problems. He has a speech impediment. He's kind of shy. He killed a guy. He's got baggage. He's got issues. Um, He's weak. And God reveals himself to this weak man in this awesome name. And it comes from the Hebrew verb to be. And this is what it means in one sense. This is the significance of God using this name. He's saying, I have always been 
who I am, which is awesome and glorious and merciful and loving. And I will always, in the present, be all and everything for you that you need. And in the future, I will keep all of my promises to you. This is my name, and my name is what I am, and my name is what I do for you. You can trust me, even in your weakness, even when you're scared to death, even when you've got a bunch of whining Israelites. I am this kind of God, and I am your God. And so David is telling himself and telling his church, Yahweh is my shepherd. He's the ancient one who's always been awesome. He is presently in each present moment providing and being faithful. And in every future moment, he will continue his faithfulness even to unfaithful sinners, which is the story of the Old Testament about how screwed up they are and how God loves them. Tim Keller says, God has had the longest dysfunctional marriage in the universe. So he knows how to speak to us about uh, faithfulness and about love. And so here is, the Lord is my shepherd. In the New Testament, if you remember when Jesus talks about what a good shepherd is, he says there's a shepherd that punches the clock. He's called the hireling. He's the hourly shepherd. When a wolf comes, what does the hourly shepherd do? He books it. He's like, I don't need to be chewed up by a wolf. This is just my day job. Man, I don't, I don't need this. But he says the good shepherd actually does what? He lays down his life for a sheep. He sleeps. He, Jesus says, I'm the door. So literally in front of the sheep pen, the shepherd sleeps. He doesn't sleep in his trailer off somewhere else. He sleeps right in front of the sheep where he takes it first if the enemy comes. And so this is our good shepherd. And this good shepherd is the Lord. And because of that, we see first in this first statement of God's goodness and this first scene, I shall not want. This means God is providing. If you're taking notes, you could say point one is provision. I shall not want. I shall not be left utterly needy and empty. God is seeing uh, to all of my needs. And this could really just be a bracket introduction to the whole psalm. I need all kinds of stuff. I need safety. I need uh, fellowship. I need his presence. I need forgiveness. I need. Re- He's got all my needs covered because he is all sufficient and he is all uh, merciful. So his provision, what does that look like? Well, it says he makes me lie down in green pastures. What's your mental image when you hear green pastures? How many of you imagine a golf course? Miles of grass, just like everywhere you look, green. Oh, man, I could just roll around in it forever. There's always grass all the time, as far as the eye can see. How many of you have been to the Middle East? How many of you have seen pictures of the Middle East? How much grass is there? Not a lot. Let's just say that. Brown is the predominant color. There's several shades of brown and tan and beige. But there's not a lot of green. Well, this means that the shepherd knows where the water is and the shepherd knows where the grass is. And you know what? There's a lot of dry stretches between the green patches. And this probably explains a lot about your life. God, I thought in in verse 2 of Psalm 23, you promised me a golf course, but I've got desert with some greens. More like a Scottish golf course. Scrubby, uh, dead with little, uh, little tees um, in the bushes, right? This is what God's doing. This insight 
was given by a, a, a Dutch Reformed pastor named Ray Vanderland. He did a series uh, for Focus on the Family called That the World May Know. Literally walking through the, the Holy Land, pointing out scriptures in their context. And, and so he said, he's leading us to the green pastures. And so it means we have to follow him. We can't break out on our own and find these. Because who could find these places? Everywhere you see is brown and everything looks dead. And he alone can take us to the places that are green and that are fresh. And he leads me beside still waters. Why still waters? Of drinking from the rapids. And so he takes us to little pools that won't scare us to death. That will give us exactly what we need besides still waters. And so that's his provision. But he provides another gift. We see it here in verse 3. We could call this renewal or restoration. And it actually uses an interesting word that is most commonly used for repentance. And in Acts chapter 2, when Peter, who himself was a mess, who made big boasts about, God, I'm never going to, Jesus, I'm never going to forsake you. I'm never going to deny you. And what did he do an hour later? I thought we lost it there for for a minute. Good. So the lead guy walking through, who's the mind detector guy, and he's probably got the big concrete suit that you saw in Hurt Locker or whatever. He's stepping, tiptoeing through, not the tulips, but through the minefield. What does every guy do behind him? Says, dude, we got a good leader. Let's let's kind of spread out, like in a fan pattern. Let's all kind of make our own path through this minefield. No, no, no. No creativity required. You know what you do? As long as that guy's not blown up, you know what you do? You put your foot in his last footprint. What does it say? He's leading us in paths of righteousness. God does everything righteously. He does everything motivated by his character. He's doing all things well. He's redeeming all things. And so it means his sheep don't need to get creative. His sheep need to be boring in the best sense of the word. Copy God. Copy his character. Copy his steps. Take his very words and make those our manual for next steps. A lot of Christians spend a lot of time wondering, God, will you show me what to do? And there's a lot of great places. He has shown you, oh man, what is good. Okay, I'm listening. You showed me what is good. What's good? To do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. That's a huge bracketing of what should our lives be about. Vertically uh, humble before him, but also ethically and uh, mercy and justice going to others. All of this is God's really clear, and maybe that bugs you. God, I wish you weren't so clear. I wish you didn't tell me what you want me to do. Could you be a little more vague so I can just kind of maybe do what I want and feel good about myself? No. And so he's leading us in paths of righteousness that we would take his steps after him. And you know what that means? It means that is part of God training us. Or a a word that we looked at um, last time in Sunday school is disciple. Uh, Listen to some verses about how do we walk in these paths of righteousness. Galatians 5.25 If we live by the Spirit which is God's gift. He's made us alive. He's restored our soul. Let us also walk by the Spirit. Let's let Him determine our steps and the shape of our life. Colossians 2.6 
Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. This means we're apprentices to Jesus. We're looking at his feet. We're looking at where his feet go. We're looking at how does he treat people. How does he treat God in terms of worship and trust? Hebrews twelve fourteen. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So there's a righteousness that comes to us as a gift, and then there's a righteousness that God has called us into, which is a walk. And so we need both. It starts as a gift. We didn't seek God. He sought us. We hated God, but he loved us to himself, and it transformed our hearts so that we're a new creation. We have new desires. So this path of righteousness is not just us going on a sightseeing tour with God. It's actually us being trained to walk through the minefield of life in faithfulness to him. So we need to be asking ourselves, is my character looking like my leader? Am I being shaped, uh, avoiding certain areas, pursuing other areas? Am I being shaped like Jesus? And what does that look like? And we're always asking that question as a church is not just is our uh, preaching shaped by Jesus and our singing shaped by Jesus, but our life together outside of this place shaped by his priorities, which is a path of righteousness. And this is all for his name's sake. This is about him. Hey, I thought you thought Psalm 23 was about us. Well, yeah, but everything he does comes back to him as glory. So he's the punchline of every issue in your life. And that's why we want to be asking the questions is, what does God want for me in this? And our first prayer is usually, get me out of this now, you know, is our first prayer. And that's an honest prayer, and pray it. Keep praying it. But be ready for God to actually teach you another kind of prayer, which is, God, get me through this and help me to see you in it. Because what does the very next verse say? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And if we just stop there, we would hear this as a call to be brave. We might hear this as, the shepherd will lead you into some pretty dicey stuff. When you're there, say to yourself, I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid. Okay, I'm not afraid. Okay, monsters, I'm not afraid of you. You know, stuff like that, self-talk and talking to the things that go bump in the night. But what's the next phrase? I'm not afraid when I'm in the valley of the shadow of death because you are with me. I actually don't have to be brave. I have to see that he is with me. But think about a shepherd and a sheep. In the Middle East, obviously, in the parts where David was a shepherd, was in the hill country of Judea. And there's a lot of hills. It's kind of rocky. There's little spots where there's waterfalls, and it's all nice. There's pools where you could go uh, swimming in it if you were just getting overheated in the desert sun. But then there's these little dry creek beds. We have these in California. And at this time of year, those places are deadly. You know why? Flash floods. A dry creek becomes a wet creek really fast. Something happens upstream, and we don't know it, and then suddenly you're walking in a dry creek, you're up to your neck in water, and you're dead. You're like, how does that happen? All of a sudden, you know what God's doing? He's leading us through valleys. We can't see around the next corner, but he does. And if you want to think of these valleys like where they did the pod race in episode, whatever the cheesy episode with Jar Jar Binks, episode one, right? Uh, 
those kind of valleys where Tuscan Raiders are up on the hill taking, you know, shooting you, and there's some really gnarly turns, and, and some people don't navigate those very well. But think about being on the ground in those places. You don't know what's around the next corner, and this is what it's saying. I live in the valley of the shadow of death. He's taking me on a walk, and all I can see is about two feet in front of me because it's all turns. It's all serpentine. But he knows it, and he sees it. And Jesus even showed his own disciples. They're in the boat. They're about to die because they're being swamped by water. And what does Jesus get up and do? He says, be still to the sea. And they go, whoa. Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? This must be the king of everything. And what is Psalm 23 saying? The king of everything is my shepherd. And he takes me to locations I would rather not go to, but he himself is in it with me. So if you want to, for that point, you can just call it, it's a travel through. God gets in it with us. And obviously in Jesus, God got into our skin. He got into our situation. He got into our pain. And on the cross, Jesus crawled inside of our guilty skin and became sin for us, and he took the wrath of God. So this is the God that goes through. This isn't the God that just waves a pass and say, I'm God, I don't have to go through that. And Christians, maybe you've been told, when you're a Christian, you get a free pass, you just wave it at troubles and say, dude, I'm a Christian, get out of my face. No, God takes us through and delivers us that way with his presence with us. This next verse is a beautiful verse. We're actually going to enjoy it concretely and literally here this morning. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And to describe this, we need to use some very strange words. God the servant. A lot of times, even worship leaders, and I've done this before, is we're not here to receive anything from God. We're not here to take from Him. We're not here just to get filled up. We're here to give to Him because He's so glorious. And that's really true, right? But in a sense, it's almost too spiritual. Does God need songs in His ear to feel, like, secure in His self-esteem? God, you're so great. You're so worthy. He's like... Oh, yeah, I was starting to feel a little low. Thanks. You reminded me of who I am. Is that why we worship? No, God says, I own everything. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. If I was hungry, I would just go make myself a burger. I do not need you to feed me. We don't bring offerings into worship, uh, oranges or animals, because God's hungry. You know what God does in this verse? He is saying to us, do not be afraid to come and be served by God. Don't be so, get all spiritual on me, God is saying. Come, I want to serve you. I want to serve you with what you need, and I want to serve you right where you live, which, where do we live? In the presence of our enemies. And God becomes a servant. Now, there's a bad way we could do that, say, Butler, I, I, I'm a little low on my cup. Can you fill it up? Didn't you see I've been sitting here? I mean, you're not going to get a tip. I mean, I'm, I'm thirsty here. Come on, my water glass, fill it up. And there's a way we can get bossy with God, we can get proud with God, but this is God himself saying, 
I set a table for you. It says, you anoint my head with oil. There's two ways this could be true. When you went to a doctor in, in uh, ancient times, obviously they probably did leeches, which was gross and not so helpful. But almost all the ways they would anoint people with oil and like give them a massage. Like if their arm hurt, they would put oil on it, kind of like in my big fat Greek wedding, put Windex on it. right? But they would use oil as both a sign of God's healing and of God's presence, but also it worked. It was a nice rub. It was aromatic. It it, uh, loosened things up. You anoint my head with oil. But there's a, a third sense of this, is the dignity of an office in God's kingdom. Who would so anoint it with oil? Priests and kings. And we've already seen in the New Testament, especially in Revelation 5, it says he has made us a kingdom and he's made us priests. But there's a beautiful verse. You don't have to turn there. It's in Hebrews 1. It's a quote from the Psalms. It says, and he has, has anointed Jesus with the oil of gladness above all his brothers. Think about it this way. Jesus is above us because he's our king, but he's also with us because he is our brother. And what God has put on him drips all over us. So really what we need to do is get under Jesus and let the gladness that is his because he's a son of God who loves God and is perfectly loved by him and who perfectly obeys, all that is Jesus's becomes ours. It says we inherit all these things through Christ and in Christ. And so all this dignity and all this beauty and all this healing and all this health gets poured out on us by God the servant. And he just, kind of like Paul does in, in Romans, is he just start overflowing with joy. My cup overflows. He just fills it and he fills it and he fills it and he fills it. God does not ration grace with you. He backs up the dump truck and he dumps it on you and he keeps dumping it, as we're going to see, for the rest of our lives when we belong to him. I skipped over something that we should see in verse 4. We see his defense of us and also his discipline. What does it say? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You think of his rod as he beats up our enemies with the rod. But what does he do with his sheep? Does he beat his sheep? No, he has a staff. He pulls us out of bushes. Ever seen a shepherd's staff? It's got a big hook on it, right? Like in the old vaudeville days when a guy was really bad and cheesy, they hooked him, right? They pulled him out. Well, that, that's like a shepherd's crook. Pulling us out of the places where we have gone astray. Listen to what the New Testament says about that kind of love that disciplines us. Hebrews 12. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Getting jerked by the neck isn't very fun. But if you're about to go off a cliff, you say, thanks, right? But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So God jerking our chain is also teaching us that we don't go there. That's not where life is. That's not where freedom is. That's, that's where danger is. That's where death is. That's where sin is. Don't, don't, don't go there. So God pulling us back is actually teaching us something. 
This is what Jesus says to one of the churches he wrote to through John. Those whom I love, <clears throat> so his staff is, is an instrument of love. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So it means come back from the edge. Don't live on the edge. See, like that's where the excitement is. The excitement is actually in God's presence, walking in this, these paths of righteousness. Instead of trying to see how much can I get away with, how much can I get forgiven of, and have my cake and eat it too. And Jesus warns us about you can gain the whole world and lose your soul. Quit trying to get away with stuff because you don't get away with anything. God gives good gifts, and so come to him. As we've just seen his provision, we've seen him serving us. And then we have this final uh, capstone verse. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What do you envision when you hear that word follow? Well, I can remember being about 10 maybe 12, yeah, maybe 12, on my really heavy, like, 50-pound steel 10-speed uh, uh, riding home from my friend's house. And there was always this one street where there was this gigantic Doberman who was never tied up. But I was, I was late for dinner, and so I took the shortcut, and I was like, oh, Lord, help the dog not be there. But lo and behold, the dog was there. So it's kind of tricky when you're trying to pedal away from a dog, but then also lift your feet up so that the dog does not bite your feet. So imagine trying to gain speed to not get bit by a dog, but then trying to lift up your feet. And I was followed all the way to the corner of the street, and somehow the dog knew, I'm, not allowed, I'm allowed to menace anybody that goes past me, but I'm not allowed to go past this corner because my owner said, there's a magic line, I'll die if I cross this line. And so I turned the corner like... Ah, ah, I'm alive. Why am I saying this? Surely God's goodness and surely his mercy. This is literally the word pursues. Follows is not just this little cute puppy that goes, can I come home with you? Surely goodness and mercy is not just this cute little puppy that follows you. It is God's relentless mercy and his relentless grace that chases us home to him. This word, uh, good, mercy, is the word chesed, which is God's covenant mercy that he pours out on his people. He has bound himself to his people. He keeps his promises to us. And God will doggedly love us all the way home. He will chase us all the way to himself. All the days of my life. And he says, all the days of my life, aren't just in this world, in this body, in this mess that we live in, in the presence of our enemies. All the days of my life actually go on forever. As I close and as we want to think about coming uh, to the table after we sing and uh, confess our faith uh, together, let's just listen to what uh, worshipers would do. What's our response to this? to seeing this film, these family movies of God's faithfulness. Well, how does he end? He says, I'll live in the house of the Lord forever. 
This basically means I'm going to camp out in God's presence and I'm going to worship him. I'm going to thank him. I'm going to feast with him. I'm going to celebrate his goodness. I'm going to say thank you. This is how an Israelite was to say thanks. To give thanks may sound simple today because we say thanks so easily, but it was not simple for the Israelite worshipers. It involved the full sacrificial ritual culminating in the peace offering. And that offering was explained to the congregation through the public declaring of thanks to God. The worship would deliver the praise while the sacrifice was on the altar so that people would know why it was being offered. He might say this, I will come to your temple with burnt offerings and fulfill my vows to you, vows my lips promised and my mouth spoke when I was in trouble. I will sacrifice fat animals to you and an offering of rams. I will offer bulls and goats. Come and listen, all you who fear God. Let me tell you what he has done for me. Then the thankful worshiper would tell his story, and the Levites were always prepared to give thanks in song when the person finished. Then the worshiper, family and friends, priests and singers, and any poor person present would eat the peace offering as a communal meal, but they would know why they were eating. And this is what we have at this table, is God's peace offering with us. Who is this table for? This table is for people who has the Lord as their shepherd, who have been taught by him, who have been restored by him to forgiveness. And we know that when we profess our faith. We're saying he has forgiven my sins. I belong to him. I will follow him. So to all who are baptized, marked out as God's people, and those who are following him as his disciples, this table is for you. And in one sense, we're singing our story. That's why if this morning you're not a Christian, you're not a part of God's church, or you haven't been baptized, the story for you is not complete. You need to be looking at Jesus and his sacrifice for you. But for every Christian uh, for which these things we just said are true of, we're telling our story. Hasn't he been good to me all the days of my life? Hasn't he set a, a table for me in the presence of my enemies? Hasn't he been good Won't you celebrate with me? That's why I had us read it together, and that's why this is not just us holding our little cracker and holding our little cup. This is us all saying together, hasn't he been good? At Jesus' expense. Our Savior, our Shepherd, has become the Lamb who was slain for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast with thanksgiving and joy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have just watched a movie in which you have starred as the central character. And we've been in it, but we're foolish sheep. We have gotten tangled. We get afraid. We think you've forgotten us. We think that we could save ourselves. We want to do things creatively and find pastures that will fill us up better than the ones you have selected and found for us. We want to restore our souls through experiences or chemicals or purchases or friendships. But you, oh God, are our shepherd. And when you lead us and when you provide for us, we have all that we need. And here at this table, we see that all that we need has been done for us in Jesus. And that all that we must do is come and believe him and receive him. And then also proclaim and confess that he is good, better than we deserve. And so we celebrate him and we celebrate together. Uh, Fill us up with all good things 
from your house as we come uh, to make our home in you and settle on your words and settle on your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.